Thank you for joining me. I'm your host, Jason Coleman, and you are listening to Things That Make You Go Hmm Book Review Podcast. And welcome to another episode of Things That Make You Go Hmm Book Review Podcast. I am your one-man book club, Jason Coleman. Thank you so much for joining me for another episode. I do hope everybody is doing okay in this whole quarantine situation that we're living in right now. I hope that my podcast is able to give you guys just a little bit of entertainment while you're probably at home uh, with lots of time on your hands. Um, So yeah, yeah, great. Okay, Uh, today's uh, book that we're going to be reviewing is... Break them up or break them up. Recovering our freedom from big ag, big tech, and big money by Zephyr Teachow. Now, for those of you who don't know who Zephyr Teachow is um, in America, I know I have a lot of international listeners. She is somebody who ran for, I want to say she ran for governor or mayor of New York. Uh, it's slipping my mind at the moment. Um, and she's just been a an activist. Uh, for the left side of politics for a long time. Um, she's very popular in the progressive circles, the, you know, full disclosure, the the political alignment that I tend to, to, to group myself with. So I've actually seen a number of interviews and shows that she's done um, with media. So I, I guess you could say, you know, full disclosure, I'm a little bit of a Zephyr Teachow fan. And um, so I was happy to, to read her book, and get an idea of what she feels are some of the political problems that are most pressing at the moment. And I, I have to say that she she brought up some things that I'll discuss in the podcast that I hadn't really thought about um, in terms of solutions uh, to the problems that we're facing or even getting into a little bit more detail about why specifically we're we're facing the problems that we are and and how to go about trying to solve them it's it's a bit more complicated than than i originally thought it was so if you couldn't tell by the title of her book um Zephyr Teachow really believes that the whole problem that we're having in America probably all around the world really but certainly here in America is this whole idea of monopolization meaning that a monopoly being that there's just a couple um, business interests that dominate a market. So it kind of gives you a little bit of an, an illusion of choice. So for example, I don't know, let's say you want to buy um, a pineapple. Um, to my knowledge, there's really only two companies that really make pineapples, which is Dole and Del Monte both very large agricultural businesses. And it's kind of interesting because on one hand, you might feel like you have choices because you can choose Dole or you could choose Del Monte, right? So, but it, but in reality, um, I, I don't know exactly what it is, but I, I think when, I think s- some business scholars said that, you know, once you have less than 10 choices in the market, then it's not really competitive anymore. So Dole and Del Monte can just 
together just decide that they're going to raise prices on pineapples, drop the prices of pineapples. They can do whatever the heck they want. And if you want a pineapple, that's the price you're going to have to pay. There's never going to be another business interest that might come in and, and undercut them or or drive down the prices or, or whatever the case is. So it's it's a bit weird because a lot of people think that monopoly means you only have one choice. But that's not really the case. As a matter of fact, Zephyr Teachow, what she was talking about was that... Um, I want to, I don't know exactly what the era was when I want to say maybe the 1900s when Theodore Roosevelt went on a, a spree of trying to break up um, the monopolies in America and the the, the biggest one that he was really uh, against was the Standard Oil Company and he said that Standard Oil Company was the reason why people were paying such high fuel prices and they were the cause of um, slowing down America's growth and all these other really terrible things about Standard Oil. And as it turned out, when they decided to break up the Standard Oil company, Standard Oil, according to Zephyr Teachow, only had 65% of the market. Um, there are businesses now that have way more uh, than that uh, than, than that share, and they don't pay... I mean, they're not considered to be monopolies. So I, I think on some level... Um, most, you know, I, I'm, I assume it's like this for most countries, but certainly here in the United States, that the corporate interests have just gotten so powerful that they're the ones who really determine whether or not there's going to be, um, you know, any sort of regulations or cutting back or trying to deal with a monopoly or, or anything of that nature. So, um, I, I definitely think that we... <laughs> That well, what people ask me what my personal political leanings are, I always say that I I consider myself to be mostly I, I don't know if you want to call it a social I, I I consider myself to be much more in the mold of like a Bernie Sanders social welfare state socialist. Um I, I really hate the term socialist, and most socialists I know hate the term socialist, mostly because if you ask ten people what is socialism, you're you're gonna get ten different responses. But one of the things that Zephyr Teachow brings up and one of the, the things that really terrifies me about at least the system of capitalism that we have now is basically 10 people in the United States, or I don't know where they live, but they, you know, I, I think they're Americans. Uh, 10 people control half of our country's wealth. That's right. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. They control half of the richest country in the world's wealth. So when you say America is the richest country in the world, it it really kind of depends on what what you're talking about. I mean, in terms of the people who live in America, yeah, sure. But in terms of uh, the wealth being distributed uh, throughout the country, you know, that's that's a completely different story. So how did it get like this? How did ten people? Uh, and and here's the problem too. Um, and and I've maybe I'll do a, another podcast uh, when when I read a book about this topic too, but. This is one of the reasons why the the black community, the, the African descendants of slaves, um, they bring up so often that they're going to need some sort of economic reparative justice uh, in this country because what they're saying is that, um, I don't know what it is, it's like 80% of all wealth that's, that's owned in this country 
um, you know, by white people, it's it's in hard assets, meaning it's in homes, it's in retirement plans, it's in land. It's not really, they're not in liquid wealth. So like, you know, just money in your bank account or or loose stocks or something like that, that most people's wealth is not there. So all of that money you you can't for honestly. It's it's tied up. Um, it's not really you know movable. So between people's hard assets and between like this consolidation of wealth among just a few incredibly uh, wealthy magnates, um, there's just not really a whole lot of wealth to to compete for in the United States. Unfortunately, I mean, for example, if I wanted to try to start up a like a cell phone company, right? I want to try to manufacture phones. I mean, it would be nearly impossible. I mean, Apple and Samsung have so thoroughly... Because I, I actually do remember... Oh, gosh. I want to say maybe 15 years ago when this the cell phone market was really taking off in, in the United States that there were a ton of competitors. There was, there was like the Razer from Motorola. There was the BlackBerry... Um, I had a I had a little Nokia phone, which I really loved actually. Um, so there were there were many many uh, competitors, but now I mean it's just you know you have a, a Samsung phone or you have an Apple phone, and that's <laughs> that's got to be ninety five percent of people. So you know there's there's no real competition. I mean, so any idea of trying to compete in that market is is ridiculous. Nobody would take you you seriously. But unfortunately, I mean. I would say in the in the United States, like trying to create any sort of of a business, like let's say you wanted to get into the restaurant business. Um, and this was actually one of the things that kind of got me into left politics and and this sort of these sort of podcasts that I bring you about um, you know, behavioral economics and heuristics and stuff like that is when I read the book Fast Food Nation. And I read that when I was in college and it really, it really influenced me. And they were saying that a lot of banks don't want to give, you know, like a McDonald's or a Wendy's or whatever the case is. And in those situations, the rules that you have to follow the franchisee, that's how they make all their money, is uh, yes, you can open up a, a restaurant with the McDonald's logo, but you're still required to buy all your products from McDonald's buy all your, you know, soft drinks from the Coca-Cola company or whatever the case is. So you don't really have a whole lot of say-so in how your restaurant works. Very little, actually. So, which is a really interesting business model because basically the the entrepreneur takes all the financial risk, but, <laughs> but the fast food company gets to make all the profit. And apparently this is also what Zephyr Teachow experienced when she was growing up. She was deeply influenced by this at a young age, too, because... Apparently, she grew up on a, a chicken farm, and she was saying that her family wasn't able to, they weren't able, they didn't have a whole lot of control, because apparently at the time, the the food company Driscoll, um, which I'm sure you've, you've seen their products, I have many, many times, they controlled so much of the chicken market that those were really the only people who were, who were able to buy chickens in, you know, in mass. So, you know, Driscoll paid what they wanted to pay. The, the, the people who were selling the chickens, they didn't have a whole lot of control over that. They had to pay whatever Driscoll wanted them to pay. It kind of reminds me of how, and I don't know why this statistic, it sticks with me, but I think about McDonald's sometimes. I don't know if you know this, but 
even though, well, I mean, we're going back 15 years ago. I don't, I don't know how much has changed since I've read Fast Food Nation. Actually longer, maybe 20 years ago. But what they said was at the time, McDonald's owned about 20% of the cattle market. And they don't, they don't actually make any, you know, they don't, they don't actually use any of this cattle to harvest. Okay. What they do is they just keep this cattle in supply basically as a nuclear weapon. And so if the cattle, you know, if the beef prices ever get too high, they just flood the market with a bunch of cattle to drive the prices back down again, which is apparently how the standard oil company would work too. They would just come into certain states they would flood the market with a bunch of cheap oil. And then once they've driven out all the competition, they would just start raising their prices again, which is why they, they wanted to try to break up these monopolies. So um, this is where Zephyr Chichao gets the idea. And at least for me, and this is what I thought was the most interesting part of the book. Well, two things. I'll talk about them both. Is we now, well, first of all, we now have these private citizens who basically act as if they are political leaders. Uh, it's really astonishing. Um, I can remember when they brought, they did, I don't know what was going on. It was during the whole Russian interference scandal that was going on in the United States, which, which I think was a bit ridiculous, but that's a topic for a different day. Um, this idea where, you know, Russia was using different media platforms to influence the election or whatnot. And so they, they were bringing in all of these um, magnates from this, from you know, the big tech world, the Google execs. Uh, the big one was Mark Zuckerberg, and you had to see this. It was incredible. Our elected officials, the people who run the United States, who run this country, were basically begging, <laughs> like little children, you know, pleading with their parents, begging them to to do better saying, you know, Mr. Zuckerberg, you know, please, we need you to increase your security. Um, Mr. Jack Dorsey, Mr. CEO of Twitter, please, you know, take more steps to watch out for the, you know, the the hate groups or, or whatever the case is. And I just could not help think to myself, we are the United States of America. We have the most powerful military the world has ever seen. We landed a we landed a spaceship on Mars, and here we are. We can't even wrangle these social media um, CEOs to do what we want them to do. It, it is astonishing. And I, I can remember that when Hillary Clinton was running for president, the, the CEO of Google, I, I forget what his name is, Sergey, whatever his name is, um, he would basically follow Hillary Clinton around wherever she wanted, you know, wherever she would go. He would just be there and they were buddies and they would hang out. And I remember Sheryl Sandberg, who's, I guess, the number two at Facebook, uh, her and Hillary Clinton were best friends and they were constantly texting each other and, you know, giving each other support. And I, I just couldn't help but think like, like, wow, how does one person have that much access to the leaders of America. That's that's just absolutely astonishing to me. Um, I guess I have the same issue. Like after Barack Obama, after he left office, the first thing he did was jump on rich on billionaire Richard Branson's yacht and go hang out in the Caribbean, you know, for a few weeks or months or or however long it was. And I, I just think to myself, that's that's astonishing that the people who have your influence, the people who have your attention, the people 
who are able to most control you are just a handful of billionaires who are who are really in my opinion the kings of of the country now this is where i think um okay <laughs> this is where i think it gets a little bit depressing and that is when people say oh okay but we live in a capitalist nation we live in a capitalist society we have choices couldn't you just choose to not use Facebook? Couldn't you just choose to not eat McDonald's? Well, on a side note, I have not eaten, after reading Fast Food Nation, you know, uh, 15, 20 years ago, I stopped eating beef and I stopped eating at McDonald's on a, as a personal choice. And um, I guess it was some moral victory for myself. I'm not really sure, but it certainly hasn't changed anything. Okay. And, and this is what Zephyr Teachout's point is. And she said that, honestly speaking, boycotting, it doesn't work, okay? Some people don't really, like, for example, let's say you just, you're not going to get on Facebook anymore. Well, it doesn't really work because, first of all, some people don't have any other social uh, outlet access, number one. Um, and number two, there just aren't really a whole lot of other options with where you can go to create your online communities. It's the same thing with with newspaper companies. She devotes a, a huge part of her book to talking about how there, in the past, there used to be, you know, hundreds of these independent, um, you know, newspaper companies. And I remember seeing a lot of them as a kid. There used to even be newsstands where you'd buy your newspapers and there would be like a dozen or so different papers that you can buy in New York. New York City was famous on every corner. It was like a newsstand. But now they just don't exist anymore because these independent news companies, in order for them to to generate interest or revenue, they have to go through Facebook. And apparently, Facebook charges um, an incredible amount of money for their advertisements. And what are they going to do? There, there's just not really any exposure for them anywhere else. So, and, and another another issue too that we have to think about is the whole idea of, is everybody really committed to this? So, for example, I can rem- I think the best example of this is the whole Chick-fil-A situation um, in, in the United States. Apparently, the, uh, I don't know, the CEO, I don't know the story too well, but the CEO of Chick-fil-A was, um, he basically was donating to causes and he was using his wealth to, to prevent gay people from getting married. He was very staunchly against gay marriage. Okay. So people decided like, oh, okay, well, this is a form of hate speech and we're not going to tolerate Chick-fil-A with this sort of hatred. So we're going to boycott Chick-fil-A. Well, I mean, I think you are organized enough to to really boycott our company. And lo and behold, they weren't. <laughs> and uh, I think it's pretty much dropped off. I don't think there's any negativity associated with going to Chick-fil-A anymore. And they didn't really, to my knowledge, they didn't really change anything that I know of. I think I think maybe the CEO said he was going to stop donating to those things. I don't know whether he did or not. So, I mean, but it, okay, another example is I can remember, you know, 15 years ago in the United States, there was in Southern California where I live, there was a grocery store uh, chain um, strike where the grocery store workers decided they were going to go on strike and they stood outside the grocery stores and they really encouraged people to to not participate with these, um, you know, with the grocery stores. And I just remember people were getting so angry. They were saying, oh, but I need to get my shopping done. This is ridiculous. You know, uh, it's not fair. And, and I can remember like uh, I was... 
I was hanging out with some friends and we were going to go to the grocery store and I saw the striking workers and I just said, you know what, this is, you know, let's just not shop here. And then as we were driving off, I, I can remember my friends in the car were like really angry at the, the, the workers who were striking. They're like, oh, they already make lots of money. They already, you know, this is, they're just being greedy. And, and I, I knew right off the bat, I said, I know what's going on. We're, we're rationalizing, we're rationalizing their behavior in a, in a way that makes us seem like, you know, we're not the bad guys because we don't want to be inconvenienced. And apparently the, the, the king of, of the boycotts in terms of, you know, the most successful, certainly the most famous in the United States was Martin Luther King Jr., of course. And we just recently celebrated his birthday here in the United States. Um, and he was famous for organizing, you know, bus boycotts and a, a few other things. Um, and I didn't know this. And this was really an eye-opening situation. But apparently, Martin Luther King was not a very big fan <laughs> of boycotts. For, and, and he wrote in the, the letters to the Birmingham jail, he actually wrote that he just felt like it doesn't make much sense for a man to spend his entire life depriving himself um, for the many, many years that it's going to take to get a company to or a, an organization to change their ways. And in this whole time, all of this depravity that somebody had to go through just to get this small amount of change that may or may not happen, it's, it's not worth it. So, according to Zephyr Teachow, what is worth it? How do you deal with this? And really, there's only one solution. You got you to gotta change the laws. You must have laws that force companies, whether they, they want to or not, to change their ways, okay? That's why you have to raise the minimum wage, okay? If people, if you give companies the option, of course, they're going to pay people as little as possible. That's the way capitalism works. That's the way it's supposed to work, Okay. Uh, a minimum wage, it keeps people from trying to, you know, undercut each other all the way to the bottom. And another thing, and, and this is important too, is that negotiating honestly for contracts is really only fair if both people are in a position of power, okay? Like, for example, if I'm a millionaire and I'm trying to sell my chickens and you're a millionaire and you're a restaurant owner and you want to, you know, serve chicken on your menu, we can, we can negotiate fairly because we're both in a position of strength and power. But if I own a chicken factory and you are destitute and on the verge of being homeless, okay, we're not in an equal position of power. You actually, the worker has no power. So I can dictate very harsh terms and there's not really a whole lot that the other bargaining party can do other than accept my terms. That's why I think in this pandemic situation that we're living in, it's it seems very obvious to me. It's the whole reason why we haven't given hazard pay to our frontline workers. It's the same reason why, you know, we haven't put in safety precautions in certain factories and other manufacturing plants, so on and so forth. Um, same with transportation workers, because honestly speaking, they don't have any bargaining power. What are they going to do? Go homeless, go starving, not feed their families? They got to go to work. So anyway, um, I, I really had to rethink my whole idea about choice and monopoly and, you know, boycotting and, you know, how to really get change. And I, I am now more... Um, 
convinced than ever that the only way to get change is to change laws. It's it. That there's <laughs> boycotting. It's just not going to happen. It's it's silly. Okay, maybe you can shame a company. And you might get some small changes here and there. But if you're looking for substantial game changer things to happen, you, you got to change the laws. That's just that's just how it goes. So anyway, it was a great read. But again, I'm a little biased because, you know, I am a big fan of Zephyr Teachow. But if you want if you want a much more in-depth look at how monopolies have basically come to dominate every aspect of modern day society, then I certainly recommend um, Break Them Up. By Zephyr Teachout. Okay. All right. I'm going to go ahead and wrap up this podcast. Thank you again so much for joining me. If it's not too much trouble, if you could, you know, whatever platform you're listening on, whether it's Amazon Music or Stitcher or Apple Music, if, if you could write a nice review for me just so that it helps spread, you know, the algorithm, it, it helps get new listeners to, um, to come on board because it's just very, it's very validating for me to know that what I'm saying has enough value where people want to spend 20, 25 minutes um, of their day twice a month with me. It's, you know, I just really, I really appreciate that. I really appreciate the fact that I'm able to encourage people to pick up and read material that maybe they wouldn't have otherwise been interested in. All right, so um, I'll be back in two weeks with another book. And until then, happy reading.